Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Let's start out by thanking our Patreon subscribers for the past week. They went to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene and got a ton of extra content yeah. that we have to offer there. As Bonus. well as ad-free episodes. We have ad-free episodes now on Patreon. Including all of our other bonus content that we have there. So much. There's a lot of stuff there. <laughs> so let's give a thank you to Stacy, Tamara, Mar- Marin. Okay. Marin gets a special shout out this week. Yes. Because I had previously pronounced her name Marine, which is how it's spelled. But she emailed us in and she was like, uh, it's pronounced Marin. Like, like Marin, Marin County. Like Marin County. So my it's bad. It's spelled differently. It's, it's spelled like maybe you'd pronounce it Marine. But I mean, saying Marin is also weird the way it's... Some people say Marin County. Yeah. I've heard that. And like, no, it's Marin County. Yeah, get it straight. So thank you, Marin. Amanda, Tammy, Louise, Emily, Henry, Tay, Brianna, Brooke, Heather, Michelle, Carly, Claire, Kirsten, Anne, Janelle, you... Ulysses, Shelby, and that's it. Thanks, guys. Thank you all so much. Okay, so we're back for part two of Aaliyah. One funny thing I realized since last week was January 16th, last Sunday, would have been Aaliyah's 43rd birthday. It's just a funny timing since I really didn't plan (laughs) for doing these episodes to like, you know, go around her birthday time. It just was a random coincidence. She's a fellow Capricorn queen like me, so that's cool. Now, once again, my main source for these episodes have has been the book Baby Girl, better known as Aaliyah by Kathy Landoli. I also watched Surviving R. Kelly, uh, a documentary series that's up on Netflix now for additional info. Okay, so where we left off last week after an illegal marriage to R. Kelly, Aaliyah cuts off all ties to him, both personally and professionally, including leaving Jive Records. She is 16 years old now, and she's basically taking the fall for what has happened between them. R. Kelly remains unscathed by his illegal marriage to Aaliyah, and despite coming off her recent hit debut album, Age Ain't Nothing But a Number, it looks like Aaliyah's career might be over just as it's begun. I feel like at this time, the only one of the only things she did was like uh, singing on other people's tracks. Well, she hasn't even done that yet. She hasn't done the Junior Mafia song. Uh, she's done nothing since this annulment. Right. We're still here at this annulment stage. Wow. So she does do a lot of features right. in general coming up, but she hasn't done anything. Immediately after this annulment. Yeah. So shortly after leaving Jive, Aaliyah is signed to Atlantic Records, who basically plan a total rebrand for Aaliyah. They want her working with all new producers to have a whole sort of creative team around her. They also want her to have a refreshed sound, uh, everything they can do to sort of wipe the slate clean of R. Kelly's influence. And just to show you R. Kelly's power at this time, producers and songwriters are not jumping at the chance to work with Aaliyah. But finally, people start trickling over, most likely emboldened by the fact that Sean Combs wanted to produce her second album, but was unavailable. But that sort of interest by him gave other people, I guess, permission to piss off R. Kelly. I have no idea why everyone in the music industry is such a huge pussy, but I guess they're really scared of R. Kelly and the wrath of what he might do to them. I mean, he was huge at the time. I guess, but get some fucking backbones. (laughs) You got to stand up to these people. Uh, So also there's lots of other people who write hit songs. Yeah. R. Kelly's not the only one. Right. Like, Get, get real, in my opinion. <laughs> so, 
yeah, as I said, Sean, Sean, he really comes through for Aaliyah yeah. in many ways. Um, so she, he does want to help. He does. He's not available for this album, but he really brings Aaliyah into the Bad Boy Crew fold, like unofficial member of that crew. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty big for Aaliyah. In fact, she's at the party at the Peterson Automotive Museum the night that Biggie is killed. Wow, she's at that. You know, I guess it maybe was a Bad Boy party. So one of the first producers to come on board is Jermaine Dupree. Then Rodney Jerkins, aka Dark Child, oh, comes yeah. on board. Uh, songwriter Diane Warren wants to work with Aaliyah, and she's obviously not an R&B staple, but she is a huge songwriter at the time. KG from Naughty by Nature produces a track that features Treach. Is it Treach? Yes, Treach. Okay. Uh, I'm always worried. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's how I've always said it. Um But it would be her collaboration with two music business up and commerce that would really take Aaliyah to the new to new heights. And they were Virginia's own Melissa Elliott and her childhood friend, Timothy Mosley, a.k.a. Missy Elliott and Timbaland. Uh, So very good. Very genius pairing. I mean, yeah, Timbaland produced some of the best songs in the late 90s and early 2000s. He was everywhere. He's He's a king. So now let me just give you a little background on these two. They were in something called the Swing Mob, which was a collective of artists discovered by Jodeci's Devante Swing. Missy and Timbaland began working as a songwriting production team after they left Swing Mob. And when they heard Aaliyah was looking for a new producer to work with, they sent her a demo track for a song called Sugar and Spice. Her uncle Barry and cousin Joma were not fans of the song, but Aaliyah loved it. So they moved forward with a meeting. This is one of Aaliyah's first real major decisions on her own. Um, Up until that point, she's really guided by her uncle and R. Kelly on the previous album. So this was her first big call, and it's a pretty damn fucking good one, (laughs) obviously. Now, Timbaland and Missy fly to Detroit to meet Aaliyah, and it's hard to imagine now, but at this point, Timbaland and Missy are the semi-noobs and Aaliyah is the big star. Right. And they're the ones who are nervous about meeting Aaliyah. So they all connect instantly. And it's not really that surprising. Like they both have very similar sort of backgrounds in music up until this point. They both are under the guidance of this big star initially, um, who is, um, you know, Devante was also abusive, like to these artists that were working for them. He ha- there's like stories that he hit Missy Elliott, like <gasps> so he they both are coming from these sort of big stars who were abusive to the people who worked with them, uh, and they both recently left those abusive situations to make a name on their own. So right. they're really in the same kind of like bucket or whatever at this point. There's probably a camaraderie there, absolutely as well. Yeah, because it's like difficult I think to be in the music industry you want to have people who you can trust and you know have gone through what you've gone through I mean Missy and Aaliyah had a really special friendship and bond together like yeah I mean so Missy and Timbaland at the time are um, making a record with Genuine who was also in this stable of artists uh, and they kind of like make a deal with him they're like let's push off your record so we can do this thing with Aaliyah he agrees to it and he kind of pushes his record label. Like he's like, oh, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not. He, so to kind of let them work with Aaliyah, this decision obviously is something that will change R&B uh, forever. Now from August of 95 to July of 96, they cut almost 60 songs that would potentially go on this album. So they're creating a ton of music. Unlike the first album, Aaliyah is involved in the songwriting and creative direction, like on every aspect of it. She is equal partners to her producers um, and the ab- album basically opens up with the declaration, like uh, it, it's Missy saying, wake up, Aaliyah. And she says, you've just now entered into the next level, the new world of funk. And that's basically what they did on this album that gets entitled One in a Million. So One in a Million drops in August of 96. It de- debuts at number 20 and goes on to sell more than 8 million copies worldwide. Of course, the media being the media, they could not let Aaliyah have this success without mentioning R. Kelly. 
And the way they're mentioning him is kind of like weird. It's like his influence is no longer there. It's like, well, why even fucking bring it up? <laughs> right. And one person says, Aaliyah fares well without his influence. It's just kind of like, this is a completely unnecessary statement. Right. But thanks for tying it to her once again. Um, one thing, I mean, the one thing that sets Timbaland apart from R. Kelly, he admits that he... When he meets Aaliyah, he also falls in love with her. Aaliyah is like 16, 17 at this time. He's much younger. He's in his early 20s. But he's like, I'm too old for her. Uh, he never crosses any of the lines that R. Kelly does, right. which proves that uh, you can do it. And right. he saw herself as more of Aaliyah's big brother. He does admit later, I think in 2011, that when he first met his wife, he knew he was going to marry her because she looked like Aaliyah. Oh, I mean, I don't well, know if his wife wants to hear that. He has a type. Absolutely. So One in a Million was a real standout in 96, which was a banner year as far as hip-hop, R&B, and neo-soul music uh, goes. There are releases from Genuine, The Fugees, Outkast, Drew Hill, Maxwell, A Tribe Called Quest, just to name a few. I mean, tons of shit dropped this year that was excellent. It's an incredible year. So her sound wasn't the only thing that Aaliyah is rebooting at this time. She's also um, shifting her style. She adopts her signature hairstyle, which is an homage to her mom's favorite movie star, Veronica Lake. That is the one eye covered by her uh, bangs. Her clothes are also kind of given an upgrade. No more oversized track suits that R. Kelly kind of put her in. Uh, she's now doing her more youthful, sexy look with the loose pants, bikini tops, or a tight cropped tank top. You can see this style sort of for the first time in her video for One in a Million. And Aaliyah proves once and for all that without the support of a Svengali, she's a natural born star. Like it has nothing to do with him. She's conquered the music biz and now it's time for her to cross over. So in 1996, Tommy Hilfiger was one of the kings of preppy fashion along with Ralph Lauren and Nautica. And this style became especially popular with the hip hop community they really began wearing a lot of these brands, giving this like horse riding, horse riding like yacht, <laughs> white lines, sort of like some edgier credibility. Um, there's a controversy around this time that Hilfiger had once said he didn't want black people wearing his clothes, and a boycott ensued. Um, not just among the black community, but Jewish, the Jewish community also boycotted it, as well as other people of color, because they were like, "Fine, you want this to be a stu- you know stuffy whites only brand, like Fuck a you. waspy." Yes, but there is no merit to these claims, as far as I can tell. I didn't do like a ton of research, but in the book, it says that there these were sort of meritless claims. It just kind of got into the um, atmosphere somehow. I do remember that as a kid. Yeah. And the boycott slowly died out. I mean, this is a scandal you can imagine happening today and it would have been like a huge thing. And then it's like, no, it's not true. But then we never hear the not, it's not true part kind of thing. Cause there was all these things like he went on Oprah. There's no like video of him on Oprah. Like, so it does seem like it was sort of, um, a story that wasn't true. So disaster is averted for that company. And in 1996, he launches a woman's line. By the spring of 1997, Aaliyah is one of the famous faces modeling Tommy Hilfiger's next generation jeans in the spring of 22 campaign. Her campaign video is shot by Mark Ronson and becomes instantly iconic. She was such a successful brand ambassador that she also becomes the face of the fall 97 campaign. And the company sells over 2,400 pairs of the red, white, and blue baggy jeans that she wears in the advertisements, which prompts them to restock 5,000 more pairs of the jeans. Her style influences the brand. Yeah. She's she's not being influenced by Tommy Hilfiger. Um, so her look becomes iconic in record time and is still influential today. But modeling was the only begin only the beginning of her crossover dreams. Now, during all of this, she's still attending uh, the Dehyde, I'm sorry, the Detroit High School for Fine and Performing Arts. Wow. She's being escorted to school like with hit records and doing this modeling campaign with a bodyguard. Uh, and so, yeah, she's still going there. She is majoring in drama and she ev- eventually graduates in 97 with a 4.0 GPA. Her first brush with the movie business is through the animated feature Anastasia. She performs a cover version of a song from the movie called Journey to the Past. Mm -hmm. Uh, The songwriters of that song eventually get a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Aaliyah performs at the 98 Academy Awards Ceremony and became the youngest singer to perform in that event. 
Uh, the song eventually loses out to My Heart Will Go On. Stupid. <laughs> Journey to the Past is way better. Um, so Timbaland is hired to produce a track for the Eddie Murphy movie, Dr. Doolittle. He brings in Aaliyah to sing on that song called Are You That Somebody? That gets her her first Grammy nomination. Look, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not even going to get into all the tracks Aaliyah is featured on during these years. It's a ton. Uh, obviously, at this point, Missy and Timbaland's careers are skyrocketing as well. Right. They're all huge stars. But she has one left, um, sorry, one area left to conquer. Aaliyah wants to be a movie star. She loves acting. Like music is her first love, but she really loves acting. In 99, she gets her first film role in Romeo Must Die. This stars opposite um, martial artist Jet Li. I remember Romeo Must Die. It's a, I mean, as from the title, you might be able to tell, it is a Romeo and Juliet type story. Uh, Star-crossed lovers, they have warring families, etc. There's lots of martial arts. Aaliyah insists on doing her own stunts. She wants to impress the audience with her ability to kick ass. I mean, the stunts are not anything dangerous, but she does a lot of her own uh, stuff. So... The only sort of off thing about this film, especially considering Aaliyah's past, was there was a 16-year age difference between the co-stars, which led to some odd choices in the film. Did you see this film? I never watched it, no. Uh, So apparently they never share an on-screen kiss in the movie. That's a love story (laughs) between them, which is sort of weird. Um, There's lots of speculation about why that is. but Aaliyah does prove she can act and carry a movie. The movie is a modest hit. It debuts at number one. I'm sorry, number two, and takes in almost 19 million its first weekend. Uh, she, you know, stayed away from reviews, according to her. But she, they were generally positive. The only thing that people were sort of critical was there was no chemistry between her and Jet Li. But that could have been intentional a, and a weird choice on the filmmaker's part. I right. don't think it's her fault. Um, people were like, they have so little chemistry together. You'd think they were putting out the fire instead of trying to start one. Um, But yeah, I have no idea. In addition to acting, she also served as the executive producer of the film's soundtrack, where she contributed four songs, including one written by Static Major and Timbaland and produced by Timbaland, Try Again. Now, this song, Top Billboard, Billboard's Hot 100, it is Aaliyah's only number one hit what? on the main chart. Like She might have one on the R&B chart, but this I mean, is her only Billboard Hot 100. This was a really big song. I It's super big. I always thought that um, the summer of 98, you could not, you could not uh, go anywhere without hearing Are You That Somebody. I would have thought that would be number one uh, no, at one point. This is her only one. I double-checked it, wow. uh, too. Wow. So... I mean, I mean, there's different looked, there's different charts, right? I be, I mean, I believe it. Try Again was huge. It's huge, and it has a lot of crossover appeal, I yeah. think. So the video also won Best Female Video, Best Video from a Film at the uh, MTV Video Music Awards. It earned a Grammy nomination for Best Female R&B Vocal. And the soundtrack went on to sell almost 2 million copies, which is a lot for a soundtrack. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. After completing Romeo Must Die, Aaliyah began to work on Queen of the Damned. She played the ancient vampire Queen Akasha, uh, which she described as a manipulative, crazy sexual being. Filming both these movies at the same time delayed the release of her third album. Uh, Aaliyah had not intended to have this long of a gap between her albums, but obviously uh, she, you know, took some time after, after One in a Million, thinking about what she wanted to do for the next album. Then these film roles kind of just happened, and it wasn't an intentional plan, but that's what happened. Uh, as I said, she wanted to sort of balance the singing and acting careers. Music was her priority, but this stuff just happened. She wanted to do these two movies, and I mean, they're, they're pretty cool movies, yeah. even though I didn't see that either one of them. Well, uh, Queen but of Queen the- of the Damned is a big Anne Rice book. Right. So, I mean, people, I remember when Queen of the Dam came out, I don't, I think it was critically maligned. It may have become a cult classic. Did you see it? I've seen parts of it, but I mean, her look in it is absolutely iconic. I mean, I definitely remember seeing images from it. Obviously it came out after she died. Yeah. She uh, filmed it before she died. Um, So I'm sure it had an element of that sadness to it yeah um because this was definitely her big starring role yes um but yeah i never saw it either i kind of want to see it um though so you know people started speculating about what was going on with her album uh in a los angeles time critic was saying that she's focusing too much on her film career and not giving her album the attention it needs timbaland is supposed to like produce this album. He actually flies to Australia where she's filming Queen of the Damned to work on the album. But eventually he leaves the production and Aaliyah brings on Static Major. As I mentioned earlier, he worked on uh, Try Again. He is from the Swing Mob Collective. He also produced Genuine's Pony. Yeah. Good song. Well, <laughs> good, good producer to have. Yeah. And he has a sad death tale. Yeah. Um, anyway, Ultimately, she does finish the album in March of 2001, and she, you know, this is five years after One in a Million. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> this album, this album was so important to me in high school. I mean, it's still an important album. It's it's one of the greatest ever. So, yeah, I mean, this debuts at number two. Uh, it sells 187,000 copies its first week. Uh, And she starts going on major press tours for this album, obviously. In July of 2001, she goes on MTV's show Diary, which is a behind-the-scenes sort of access to celebrities' life. This is Aaliyah's life. In this documentary, she states, I am truly blessed to wake up every morning and do something that I love. There is nothing better than that. Everything is worth it. The hard work, the times when you're tired, the times when you're a bit sad... In the end, it's all worth it because it really makes me happy. I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. I've got good friends, a beautiful family, and I've got a career. I thank God for his blessings every single chance I get. Now, this summer is busy for Aaliyah career-wise. As I mentioned, she's doing a lot of press for this album release. 
She um, gives a particularly revealing interview to a German magazine at the end of July 2001, where she speaks about the pressures of fame and a recurring dream she is having. In the interview, she said, it is a dark, it is dark in my favorite dream. Someone is following me. I don't know why I'm scared. Then suddenly I lift off far away. How do I feel as if I'm swimming in the air? Free, weightless, nobody can reach me. Nobody can touch me. It's a wonderful feeling. They even try to interpret the stream together in the interview. Aaliyah doesn't believe it is meant meant to mean that she wants to fly away from her career, um, which was always her lifelong dream after all. And uh, something she worked very hard at, she always wanted to be a good entertainer. In this interview, she talks about a pretty appearance isn't what makes you a star. It's all of this hard work to be a performer and a good entertainer, which obviously she is. She also speaks of her desire to have a family, her newfound interest in the Egyptian culture after working on uh, Queen of the Damned. And although her recurring dream could have made her more anxious, it seemed to bring Aaliyah a lot of peace. Now, a lot is made of this interview after she dies. Yeah. People say that she predicted her own death. I mean, it seems like a pretty typical type of dream you might have, like an anxiety-driven dream, right? Aaliyah was just a very introspective person and very self-reflective. I don't think it's unusual that she would have given an interview like this and revealed personal thoughts like this. Right. Especially at at this point, she's getting more comfortable with fame because she is very shy initially. uh, And it took her a while, I think, to trust after what happened with R. Kelly. So I think she's getting to that point. Yeah. I mean, I'm just mentioning that people did after the fact, we're like, whoa, because this does eventually get printed like a week after uh, she dies. So she is really happy though, because although the world is unaware of her relationship, Aaliyah has been in a relationship with Rockefeller Records co-founder Damon Dash for a year at this point. So in August of 2001, she is spending time with Dash at the Hamptons estate of Jay-Z. She's still finishing up some post-production of Uh, on Queen of the Damned, and she's beginning pre-production on the two Matrix sequels in which she has just been cast. Yeah. Now, obviously, she doesn't end up doing those movies, but she is cast in them. I think Nona Hendricks takes over her role eventually. On August 21st, she heads to Miami to film her video for, for the song Rock the Boat with Hype Williams. At the last minute, the director uh, decides to fly everyone to the Bahamas to shoot some more footage for the video. Uh, Shooting in the Bahamas at that time was a very popular choice for video directors. It gives you a lot of um, things you can't get in more populated areas. The beaches aren't as crowded. You can really go out into the ocean on boats and not have anything in the background, which is uh, in the video. There's shots that are sort of like that. It's one of the most beautiful videos. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, the minute she uh, arrives at the airport, uh, she sees the plane that will be flying her to the Bahamas. Now... Aaliyah gets stressed out. She's already a fearful flyer, um, but seeing the small aircraft tripled her anxiety. She texts Damon Dash with her concerns about flying, and he's like, don't go. But Aaliyah is unsure about what to do. Also complicating matters is that this is the first time she's taken a professional trip where not one of her family members is is accompanying her. Now, her mom and dad are her uh, managers. Her brother is very involved in her career, Rashad. Uh, they're usually always with her on these types of trips, and uh, they aren't on this one. So they're really there to protect Aaliyah. They're the ones who kind of advocate for her in these situations. Uh, she's shy and, and accommodating, uh, like I, I mentioned that earlier. And she really needs her family in these situations to kind of be the asshole, so to speak, because she can't really do it for herself. She doesn't want to be seen as difficult. She wants to be seen as a team player. So she, she sometimes can't stand up for herself uh, like she wants to. And that's what happens here. So and she probably doesn't want to... Maybe she's second guessing herself. Like, am I overreacting? Yeah. It's a lot of that stuff that we all kind of do. Yeah. And I, I I get in her situation why you really don't want to seem like some demanding diva. Right. You know, everyone who talks about Aaliyah is like, she's really down to earth. She's not like... She doesn't come off like a snobby star, like right. she's chill. So she probably puts that pressure on herself to keep that, you yeah. know, and she has a right to uh, say how she feels, obviously. 
but she does not complain and she gets on the plane. So the shoot is a success um, and they actually finish early. So some of the crew opt to stay a day and relax because the rooms are kind of already booked and paid for. But Aaliyah and several others in her crew opt to leave early. um, And in the early evening of August 25th, they have a plane uh, that's going to take them back to Miami. Now, some of the info I'm going to give you now is new information that the reporter who wrote the book, Kathy Landoli, got. Uh, she gets an interview with a person who was on the scene named Kingsley Russell. He is a he was a 13 year old boy at the time of Aaliyah's plane crash. Uh, he is the son of the woman who drove Aaliyah to the airport that day. He was there to sort of carry bags for Aaliyah, which was like a cute little side gig his mom got for her son. Uh, she probably had to take him, and this was like his job, right? So Aaliyah arrives at the Marsh Harbor Airport. She sees a twin-engine Cessna aircraft and is immediately panicked. Now, this airplane is even smaller than the Cessna on which they had originally arrived. Kingsley recalls seeing Aaliyah talking with her crew and then seemingly going back and forth with the pilot about all the baggage and passengers. He also claims that people at the airport are all kind of whispering amongst themselves that the plane would not be able to handle all that luggage and the passengers that were being loaded up on it. A charter pilot named Louis Kay claims that he overheard passengers arguing with the pilot, Luis Morales III, prior to takeoff, adding that Morales kept warning them that there was too much weight for a safe flight. He also stated he tried to convince them the plane was overloaded, but they insisted they had chartered the plane and that they had to be in Miami Saturday night. Now, Aaliyah also believes that the plane is overweight, and she has concerns about getting on board. Tensions are really high already because the plane is almost two hours late. Their initial departure time was supposed to be at 4.30 p.m., and now it's like closing in on 6. Aaliyah uh, said at some point that she had a headache. She goes back into the taxi to sit. She calls her boyfriend, Damon Dash, who once again tells her not to go. There is a private jet coming the next day, he said to Aaliyah. You can just like take that back tomorrow to Miami. There's no need to rush. Kingsley said that Aaliyah then lies down in the back seat and basically kind of takes a nap. She says she has a headache. Um, she asked the mom to turn the AC up in the in the um, taxi. Um, so he says that a member of her entourage eventually comes over, wakes Aaliyah up and asking her, what's wrong? Is she feeling okay? According to him, the person then gives her a pill and water and immediately And Aaliyah takes the pill and immediately crashes again, this time seemingly like she's in a deeper sleep. The pilot eventually gives in to the passengers and begins loading the plane. According to Kingsley, Aaliyah is then taken by one of um, the people who is flying with her, boards the plane and seemingly to be really out of it and sort of sleepy or close to falling asleep. In his opinion, it explains how they finally got her on board. Now, investigators would later say the the plane was carrying approximately 700 pounds more than it could carry safely and one more passenger than it could carry safely. The pilot initially has trouble starting one of the engines, but the plane manages to take off at 6.45 p.m. And just a minute after takeoff, it veers sharply to the left, crashing into a marsh and exploding into flames. Aaliyah and the eight others on board, pilot Luis Morales III, hairstylist Eric Foreman, Anthony Dodd, security guard Scott Galen, family friend Keith Wallace, makeup stylist Christopher Maldonado, and Blackground Records employees Douglas Kratz and Gina Smith are all killed. Three people survive the initial crash, but die shortly after. So according to the findings from an inquest conducted to the coroner's office in the Bahamas, Aaliyah suffered from severe burns and a blow to the head in addition to severe shock and a weak heart. The coroner theorized that she went to such a state of shock and possibly had a heart attack before the crash because of that shock. When it it was veering off to the left? Oh, my God. Um, So he speculates that even if she did die of a heart attack, which they have no evidence of, her injuries were so severe, she would have died eventually from them even if she had survived the crash, like the, the three other people who did sort of survive the initial crash. I'm sorry, crash, her recovery would have been impossible, according to him. The bodies were taken to the morgue and they had to wait for relatives to identify them because obviously this was a huge fire and some of them were burned beyond recognition. Um, 
The National Transportation Safety Board reported that the pilot was not approved to fly the plane. Um, He had obtained an FAA license by showing hundreds of hours he had never flown. He may have also falsified how many hours he had flown in order to get the job with his employer, Black Hawk International Airways. And toxicology tests performed revealed that he had traces of cocaine and alcohol in his system. So... But the but the cause of the crash is the overloading. Yes. He wasn't uh, intoxicated in that way, but he had traces in his system. So um, this new info is definitely interesting because um, obviously it could have just been aspirin. She did have a headache at the time and it could have, you know, that could have been what it was. She was tired from shooting the video all day in the sun. That's yeah. like very exhausting. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think anyone here is speculating that she was drugged. It's possible she took something to make her less anxious about flying. That's something that a lot of people do. Right. Uh, they take some kind of sedative or Valium or whatever. I mean, like you said, it would make complete sense for her to be exhausted just from this shoot in the sun. Absolutely. Now, but it does answer some questions people had in the aftermath of the crash, which was why did this well-known fear feel fearful, sorry, flyer seemingly insist on getting on board. Like the initial story was that she was the one insisting. And according to this, that was not the case. And I don't think it would be the case based on her previous behavior. And the answer seems to be that it wasn't her doing the insisting after all. She just kind of maybe went along with it and maybe she was a little tired and not, uh, you know, standing up to, to what she didn't want to do and as even much if as she, possible. And even if she was insistent, this pilot should have never flown this plane. Oh, absolutely. Like, ultimately, it's the people who know what they're talking about who are the ones responsible to do safety rules yeah, and follow the thing. Yeah, it's not her job. No, I mean, some of the things were like... By the way, the bodyguard who was on this plane, Scott Galen, that he was the one who went to school with her. He was her like longtime friend who was her bodyguard who escorted her to high school. Yeah. And he's one of the people who survived the initial cl- um, crash. And his like first words to the first responders was like checking on Aaliyah's mm. uh, safety. So uh, mm. really sad. So obviously this happened, you know, we're talking like 7, 8 p.m. in the Bahamas. So the news starts to slowly leak out that evening that 22 or Aaliyah Aaliyah had died in a plane crash. Obviously, this is news that people um, can't believe. I remember where I was. I My best friend called me on the phone to tell me I was getting ready for bed. Oh, really? I remember exactly where I was in my, my mom's house, and I just, both of us started crying immediately. Oh, damn. It was fucked up. Well, Ludacris was actually performing on stage when he got the news, and he announced it to the stunned crowd, like... I mean, it was just like shocking as this news spread. Uh, I remember this very well. Like at that time, she's the it girl. Yes. And this is not just in a specific genre of music. No. For a specific type of fan. She's like it girl in music. And she is like the upcoming fashion. fashion, But she's the upcoming movie star. Like she was about to have like this huge movie career. Right. Everyone was priming her to be that next big thing in the movies as well. So it was really shocking. And she just had this album, which was going to be even bigger than the last album. Yes. So obviously Aaliyah's parents end up reaching a settlement in this negligence lawsuit against Black Hawk. I mean, they're clearly negligent in this situation. Um, and I think they eventually go out of business. Um, Aaliyah has a private funeral, um, on August 31st, 2001 at the church of St. Ignatius Loyola in Manhattan. Uh, her body is in a silver plated copper deposit casket. It is taken to the the funeral on a horse-drawn glass hearse. Um, 800 mourners are in attendance during this procession. Uh, So obviously it's like a who's who of people at this um, private ceremony, Missy Elliott, Timbaland, Gladys Knight, Lil' Kim, Sean Combs. Um, After the service, 22 white doves are released to symbolize each year of her life. And she is initially entombed in a crypt on the third floor of Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York, with the inscription, Baby Girl. Her father, Michael, who dies 11 years later at the age of 61, is interred in the crypt above her. And the inscription at the bottom of her portrait at the funeral read, we were given a queen, we were given an angel. 
Her brother Rashad delivered the eulogy at her funeral. Um, He said, Aaliyah, you left, but I'll see you always next to me. And I can see you smiling through the sunshine. When our life is over, our book is done. I hope God keeps me strong until I see her again. He read the names of the other victims of the crash and concluded by asking mourners to pray for them as well. As Diane Houghton and the mourners left, they sang Aaliyah's song, One in a Million. Um, The family did always make um, an effort to always include the other victims in uh, their memories of Aaliyah. Like they wanted to make sure they were not left out. Um, Okay. I mean, just awful. Uh, So... Uh, I'm crying. (laughs) I know. I don't want to do. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's It's really sad. I mean, it's just like I feel like I'm right back there where I heard the news and where I, I mean, it's just to this day, it's just like it just feels so senseless and just it's so tragic. It's definitely one of the more shocking, unexpected celebrity deaths of the last like 20 plus years. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, just very unexpected. Also sort of like continuing that sort of awful musicians dying in these small plane crashes. Like it's a wonder any of them get on those planes anymore. Like it's just crazy. I mean, I feel like it's just a neat, it's like a, it's part of that business. You have to take these small planes sometimes. So it's probably just more, uh, there are people who take them more, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, crazy. So, so look, we're not going to get any any anything better coming up right now, but let's get through it. Since Aaliyah's 2001 death, the stories about her and R. Kelly have kind of continued to slowly leak out from friends, some family members, and her boyfriend, uh, Damon Dash. A lot of these stories suggest that the relationship between them was way worse than what we initially knew. And in general, the changing times mean that a lot more people are revisiting how they looked at that relationship to begin with. Um, even though it's pretty bad back then. Uh, For instance, in 2004, uh, Aaliyah is still kind of being treated negatively in regards to this relationship, even though this is post um, R. Kelly having that sex tape released where he's with the underage girl. It's like the very famous one that was released. In the book, um, Landoli describes writing a feature on R&B singer Ciara in 2004. Ciara at the time uh, was 19. She had just released a duet with R. Kelly, which R. Kelly wrote the lyrics for. Wasn't and, she 17? I mean, I have 19 here, but... Maybe I'm thinking... Well, I feel like when her first single came out in like... Was this the duet though? No. So this is the she duet. She was young. She was She might have had things before this duet with R. Kelly. Yeah. I mean, so I think at the at the time Landoli was like that's kind of uh weird to have this duet <laughs> knowing what we know about R. Kelly as I mentioned that child pornography or you know whatever had this, already been released. Yeah. Um Ciara's team not Ciara, I want to make that clear, were outraged by Landoli being like that's a weird thing to do. Uh, and they said to her, she's not Aaliyah, as sort of like, uh, uh, like don't smear her kind of thing. Right. Uh, according to Landoli, the mention of Aaliyah by Ciara's team, as if it were a mark of shame, felt so wrong. The blame was once again being placed on the teenage girl and right. not the predator. So that's 2004 that this team uh, is still doing this. Luckily, though, um, it's outrageous how long... <laughs> It took R. Kelly to finally start paying the consequences for his abuse and crimes. One of the main reporters on on this whole story is a journalist named Jim De Regatis. He he's the one who breaks the story of that sex tape in 2000, and he has been reporting on uh, R. Kelly ever since. He's the one who finally gets the documents regarding the annulment of Aaliyah's marriage to R. Kelly. According to him, the annulment of the Aaliyah marriage and Aaliyah's legal claim against R. Kelly had been sealed in Detroit. They were sealed by the court, but those documents were provided to me. It's a harrowing document, a non-disclosure agreement on both her part and Kelly's, vowing not to pursue further legal claims for physical abuse. So it wasn't just an underage sexual relationship. He was hitting her, allegedly, according to these court documents. Now, he admits to no liability or wrongdoing in these documents, but he pays Aaliyah a sum of $100, and Aaliyah and her parents discharge him from any further legal claims pertaining to emotional distress and or physical injury or emotional pain and suffering from assault or battery. So 
I mean, they're basically, basically, Aaliyah is like, at this point, I need to just get away with him. Anything that helps me separate my ties from him is like the $100 is obviously just a symbolic whatever. So De Regattis also participates in the 2019 documentary, Surviving R. Kelly. And he has a book um, called Soulless, The Case Against R. Kelly that also comes out in 2019. And we learn more about their relationship in this documentary as well. Now, According to De Regattis, all but one of my sources said Aaliyah and Kelly began having sexual contact during her first recording section, sessions when she was 14 at the time. One of R. Kelly's former backup singers, Javante Cunningham, says that she once walked in on R. Kelly in bed with 15-year-old Aaliyah on the tour bus, and Kelly was doing things that an adult should not be doing with a child. Now, Aaliyah's mom denies this accusation. She says the woman and so-called backup singer in the forthcoming surviving documentary describes seeing, meeting, or ever breathing in the same air as my daughter Aaliyah is lying and a liar. My husband and I were always on tour with her and at interviews in every place she went through the entire career. Whoever this woman is, and I have never seen her before anywhere on planet earth until now. These lies and fabrications cannot be tolerated and allowed to spewed with the forked tongues of saboteurs and Aaliyah's legacy. She goes on to say uh, that she was considering legal actions against this woman for saying this, but uh, none of those ever happened. Now, Damon Dash seems to side more with the other victims and also appears in the documentary. According to him in Surviving R. Kelly, Aaliyah was too traumatized by her relationship to ever tell him everything that had happened and that she would only say the dude was a bad man. In a 2019 interview with Nick Cannon, Dash said, he said, I know the whole story. I know it was the cover-up and all of that, but how did that cover it up? It just made the conversation, oh, he married a child? That was a headline. That was a rumor. That was something talked about like it was normal. It wasn't like, ooh, disgusting. You married a 15-year-old. It was like, oh, he married Aaliyah? If people would have protected Aaliyah, so many other girls wouldn't have gotten touched, he says. Aaliyah was like the sacrificial lamb for all that cause. She didn't deserve none of that. Good soul, good girl. And she wasn't even so resentful. Like, let that man live, but just keep him the fuck away from me. That's all she wanted. She just wanted to be happy and to be away. Now, obviously, the truth of the matter is Aaliyah was never able to tell her story and give us her truth about what she survived. And I mean, I think that she probably would have eventually, especially in light of everything that came out after her death, but who knows? And in my opinion, victims of abuse certainly have the right to protect themselves in any way they see fit. So we do know that many girls and young women were hurt by R. Kelly and a lot of... um, His MOs line up with what we know about how he treated Aaliyah, including things like dressing his protégés in baggy clothing to hide their sexuality from anyone but him. There's a bunch of other things he did that sort of we know he did to Aaliyah. I also want to say that, uh, in my opinion, the family and their point of view is telling the truth. Like, I don't think they knew what was happening. If it was happening, I think they loved and were protecting Aaliyah. But as we all know, it's very easy for teens to also have a life outside of what their parents know. Right. And that's very possible. It's very possible that, she was hiding yeah, a and, lot of stuff. I mean, So, I mean, I think there's a lot of self-preservation going on here on everyone's side. Especially considering Aaliyah was so young, it makes sense yeah. she would not disclose these horrible things to Absolutely. her family. I mean, yes. But... And I, but I just want to clarify that I do think the parents are telling that their truth. Right. Like I think that that's what they believe, and who knows why they believe that, or maybe they're protecting their own guilt. I have no idea. Um, but I also know the family is a victim here. Yeah. They trusted R. Kelly, and uh, he's the monster here. Yes. Uh, ultimately, so. Uh, so. And some of the victims have said that. They felt less ashamed coming forward, knowing that even someone of Aaliyah's stature was manipulated and abused uh, by this monster. So the first time that Aaliyah's name is ever spoken in a courtroom as a victim of sexual abuse is in August 2021, 20 years after her death, which coincides with the re-release of her music on streaming platforms. Ironically, for years, the only album of Aaliyah's you could stream on like you know, Spotify, Spotify or, or whatever was the R. Kelly produced album. Right. Uh, so that kind of sucks. 
Um, (laughs) Kelly, as we all know, was being prosecuted at this time for the crimes he allegedly committed against Aaliyah, as well as 19 other women and two men in a case brought by the Eastern District of New York. Demetrius Smith, we talked about him last week. He's the one who helped them get the um, fake ID for the marriage license. He was R. Kelly's right-hand man for many years. Uh, he testifies in trial, like he's forced to testify. He almost doesn't want to testify against R. Kelly, um, but he basically talks about their relationship and admit, admitted in court it was obviously inappropriate from the start. He, um, R. Kelly is eventually convicted of all counts and will be sentenced in May of 2022, where he faces 10 years to life in prison. Now, In a sort of poetic justice across the East River from the federal courthouse where R&B star, I'm sorry, R. R. Kelly is being tried for racketeering and sex trafficking, there was a three-story billboard of Aaliyah promoting her music finally being released on streaming platforms with the message, Aaliyah is coming. And I like to think wherever her spirit is, she was helping in some way to make sure this abusive monster finally faced consequences for what he did. Now, I also want to say there is a posthumous album release that just dropped this month called Unstoppable, which features her now hit song Poison with uh, The Weeknd. Did you see the artist featured on this album? It's, uh, I'm not happy about it. It's, it's, it's a choice. Yeah. So I don't know who. I don't, there's, first of all, there's no women featured on this album, it's all guys. And then one of the guys is Chris Brown. Yeah. I mean, come it's on. It's a choice. <laughs> it's definitely a choice. Look, I didn't even get into all this controversy with her uncle holding the catalog back. Uh, yeah. Like there's a lot going on there that was just a little too complex for me to dig into and, and clear up succinctly. Yeah. But yeah, I have no idea. But I haven't listened to the album yet. But when I saw that, I was like, what? Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> come on now. I, I, I mean, I think the consensus, at least on Twitter, people were like, this is wrong. Well, it's also kind of just shows you that this shit still happens. Like, we are not done working on this issue. Right. Uh, People are too easily uh, forgiven if they're hit makers. Yeah. Come on. We've got a lot of people. Yeah. As I said before, who can write hits. So, yeah, that's it. Sorry for a depressing (laughs) end. Ugh. Well, I mean, yeah, that was great, Desi. Um, obviously, we love Aaliyah. We love her music. We'll have more good pictures. We will have more good pictures from her One in a Million era and her... Um, Queen of the Damned. Queen of the Damned. Yeah. More, more Than a Woman. A great. One of my favorite um, pop songs, More Than a Woman. Yeah. So we'll post stuff and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter yeah. Check out our Patreon, all of that stuff. Yeah. We're going to um, record our after show. I'm going to get a tissue because I've been crying. <laughs> I know. I need last... to, I feel like I was going to have a heart attack. Why? Because I was crying? No, because it was like stressful to read it. I got like jacked it's up. It's emotional. Yeah. It was emotional to keep myself from getting emotional. Yeah. So I well, need, I'm going to take a walk. It was a great, <laughs> it was a, it was a great two episodes, Desi. Thank you. Um, we will see you guys uh, for the mini episode. Bye. Bye. 